0: Good morning, Living Water. It's good to see everyone out. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Esther. Uh, If you're not sure where that is, if you have one of the Bibles from Living Water, that's on page 410. Page 410, if you you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word. Today, we'll actually be looking at the book as a whole, and then I'll briefly look at the first nine verses. I give a few comments about that, and that'll launch us into our study of Esther. So... 410 in your Bible, I'm reading from the ESV, first nine verses. I'll read along aloud as you follow along silently. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you and praise to your great name. You are worthy of our adoration that you have hidden yourself from our eyes. We do not perceive your workings in the world until they have been accomplished. But we do ask today that you would open our eyes to see the good things that you have done so that we might praise you. And we ask that you would open our hearts so that we might receive what your spirit would say to us today. Cleanse us from any sin. May your name and the name of your son, the Christ, be glorified in all that is said and done. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. A friend and a coworker invited me over to his home, or which was an apartment at that time, for a small dinner party, of which uh, he and his fiance along with myself and a new resident to our apartment complex would be the guests. And this new resident would also be a fellow student who was coming in for their first semester. As I sat on the couch waiting for the other guests to arrive, I interacted with the host and his fiance as they finished putting the touch finished touchings on the, the meal that we were going to have uh, that evening. And as we were sitting there and as they were moving about the apartment, I uh, heard a knock upon the door and my friend, of course, with his apron on, came out of the kitchen and made his way to the door uh, greeted this guest and walked the guest into the house, and introduced me to the new, the new resident, who happened to be a young lady. She had just recently moved from an island in the Caribbean, and she, while they were finishing up the meal, sat on the other couch opposite me, and we struck up a conversation about faith and family and future aspirations. And one of the aspirations that she shared with me on that evening was her desire to, after finishing her second master's degree here at seminary, was to return home uh, and share what she had learned about God and Christ and those things that pertain to him uh, in her own home to benefit others back where she was from. uh, Because she had a passion to help others know and follow Jesus Christ. Now, this meeting almost did not happen. Just in the prior month of December, uh, she had been informed by our apartment complex manager that there was no room uh, in the inn. There were no uh, apartments for rent. And she had marked it off her list and decided that when she arrived that there were 16 other locations that she was going to have to, to view, potentially, to be able to find a, a, place, a place to stay. But something happened. Two weeks before she relocated, the apartment manager called her and, and said, I don't know how it happened. But out of the blue, someone called, and they're moving out. Are you still interested in renting? To which she joyfully responded with a positive affirmation, and she completed the paperwork those, within those two weeks prior to her flight leaving to come so that she could become a tenant in this apartment complex, which was at the top of her list. Now, little did we know when we were having that friendly conversation that an unseen hand was at work. And that three and a half years later, we would marry in her home island. Fifteen and a half years later, I'm standing here today telling you this story in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Now, the week that she had, uh, before she had received the call which we didn't know was going on, my friend and I, let alone we didn't even know of her existence, let alone the situation that was transpiring in her life, my friend and I had fasted and prayed that God would provide me a wife. See, God is at work in the world even when he appears absent. And for many of us, that's how we experience God's presence in the world. Our lives are not filled with the parting of seas or rivers. There are no visitations by angels, miracles, or dreams and visions from God or Jesus. We simply pray, believing that God sees and listens with no expectation that a voice will respond to the prayer we have just uttered. And from a human perspective, it is the wealthy and the influential and the power brokers that really do seem to be in control of the world, directing the affairs of the world to their desired ends. While we, as the ordinary citizens of the world, live out our routine lives, at times in frustration at our helplessness to reorder the world, to change circumstances, nevertheless quietly hoping that there will be something different. And it's into the very ordinariness of our lives that the book of Esther speaks, reminding us that humans will make decisions. But there is another force at work in the world behind the scenes that is greater than any human agent that directs the destiny of people and nations. And that is God. Now, over the course of the upcoming weeks, we will walk you through the book of Esther and in preparation for the time ahead, I have been tasked today with introducing you to the book of Esther and briefly looking at the few verses that we read here for the first part of the introduction to Esther. And so, let me introduce you to this book. If you're not familiar with it, now for those who read the book and studied it, you know that the events that are retold in this book happen over the span of nine years. Uh, these events take place between when the Jews had returned to build the temple under Zerubbabel but before Ezra and Nehemiah had returned to the land and although some Jews had decided to return home many decided to remain as we might phrase it in exile uh, and the reason for that was as one ancient source tells us because they were doing well in the homes that they had grown up and and known and formed lives in and they didn't want to uproot those lives because they were doing well and return to the land to have to restart over so they remained Where they were. Now, Esther in the timeline happens about 50 years or so before our last prophet of the Old Testament era of that period, Malachi, and that precedes what will be about approximately 400 years of silence from God. Now, Esther, if you didn't know, is a book in the Bible with a very rare quality. We will be over the next several weeks in the Bible, but there will be no reference made to God or things that pertain to God, such as the law, the temple. And there will be no mention of prayer. We will not encounter any miracles, no visions, no dreams. There won't be any announcements from prophets or prophetesses. No angels will appear to provide divine guidance or insight. And the closest thing that we will come to anything religious will be to fasting. And some of us know that we don't have to necessarily be religious to fast. We just do that to lose weight. <laughs> in Esther, God is hidden. We're not even afforded, as in often we find in other books of the Bible, spiritual commentary to direct us on how to understand what the people are doing and how to interpret what we're reading. We're not given access to their thoughts or the motives of people except for Haman on one occasion. And interestingly, the book describes things in the very way that we encounter life as we live it on a daily basis. We learn about people through their actions and through their words. And as such, our two featured Jews in this book are portrayed as morally ambiguous. They're going to make some decisions that adhere to God's revealed will, and we will admire them for that. But they're also going to make some decisions and choices that are morally questionable in light of what we read in the law and the other writings that have preceded the time of the writing of this book. In addition, our main two Jews will adopt culturally appropriate names. We are given one of the names uh, of the characters before they adopt a name. And some of you who have moved to this culture understand what that's like to be uh, transitioned to another culture and have to adopt a name that's not your birth name, but it is a culturally appropriate name, perhaps because those in the culture are not able to pronounce your name because they don't have the ability or background to understand how to sound out the things that form your name. Well, in this case, the names that they choose are echoes of Mesopotamian gods, Ishtar and Marduk. Dr. Taylor explains uh, when she writes uh, her Babylonian name, Esther, may come from the Persian noun, which means star. But it is more likely derived from Ishtar, the name of the renowned Babylonian goddess of love and war. And this name will actually be fitting for her as these two themes are what are connected to Esther in this book love, and war. And it's perhaps for these reasons that I have shared with you amongst some others that there was a hesitancy in church history toward this book. Now, during the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther actually stated this in his native time. He said, I am so great an enemy to the second book of the Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all for they have too many heathen unnaturalities. Now, we might be tempted as well as we encounter this book to want to write this book off, push it to the back of our reading list, maybe not read it ever. It's into those moments that we must remember that what Paul wrote on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God and woman of God who are sitting here might may be complete, equipped for every good work. So why would the author or authors, because we don't know who wrote the book, intentionally scrub the narrative clean from any overt references to the God of Israel? Well, based on my limited resources and limited time available to research this, I will share with you the best explanation that I came across from the various writings that I encountered. But please feel free. Hey, you're able to do your own research. And if you come up with a better reason than the one I'm going to present, please, you have my email. Send it to me and send me the reference and we'll correct it in future sermons. Well, the explanation that I want to present to you today comes from an Old Testament scholar by the name of Anthony Tomasino. He begins first by explaining the historical context in which the book was written. It wasn't written in the modern world, but the ancient world. And one of the common factors about writings that we've discovered from history is that they all share a supernatural worldview. As you read some of the writings, you'll notice how often they invoke a god or gods in just some of the very ordinary things of life. It shows up in the writings and it shows up in the imagery. They're always invoking some god or some goddess in light of whatever it is that they're doing. And so with that in mind, understanding the cultural context in which this book was written, we're left to conclude that the omission of God seems to be an intentional writing technique. So what is it that the author wants to accomplish or communicate, as it were, by hiding God in this book? As I've already mentioned, Esther and Mordecai do not appear to be, as we'll read through the book, committed Jews like we encounter in the book of Daniel. You will notice that neither more Esther nor Mordecai are looking for God at all. They're just living and making decisions. Some of the elements of the story, as we'll make our way through the book, will remind us of the Joseph narrative. But others will remind us of Gideon from the book of Judges, and some of it will read just like that. So it does not seem to be their faithfulness to God that the author wants to communicate to us. The answer lies in another place. To find that answer, we need to actually travel back farther in time to the days of Moses just before the people enter the land and Moses dies at God's command. And God and Moses are having a conversation and God tells Moses before he dies what will be the future of the nation of Israel. And this is recorded for us near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Let me grab one small portion to let you know what God said would happen in the days in the future long after Moses had passed off the scene. He said this, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So God tells Moses that he promises that he is going to hide himself from his people when they sin. And knowing this, God does something interesting so that when things happen, they'll know that what he said was true. He says, Moses, I want you to write down this song and teach it to the people so that when the future generations sing this, they will remember what I said about what they would do. And in the song, God unfolds the history of Israel before one day ever happens. He says that after they are blessed by them, they will become prideful and self-conceited and they will engage in gross idolatry. And in response, God would send them in anger into exile, but he ultimately would deliver his people and punish their enemies. What seems to be going on in Esther is this. That the author of Esther seems to be illustrating with the story of Esther, the faithfulness of God to keep his word to Moses, as we see in Deuteronomy 31 and 32. And we learn a valuable lesson about God, that God remains faithful to the covenant even when his people do not. Now, what might we take to indicate God's actions in the book of Esther? Well, as another scholar, Dr. Karen Jobs, as she points out, you cannot understand what God is doing by reading the book of Esther. If you read it in isolation, you are left with simply looking at life from a human perspective, and you cannot understand what's happening. The only way to understand Esther properly is to look at Esther in the context of the Old Testament, and you you and I have to move outside to read explicitly how God works in the world, and then as we understand from the greater revelation of God, we're able to then look at Esther and understand how God is moving in Esther. It is then, after reading all that is outside surrounding Esther and what God has already communicated, that we're able to comprehend that these number of coincidences and the reversals of fortunes Fortunes are not the blind operation of fate as Haman will seek and we will see, but it is actually the only wise God directing the affairs of the world. As King Nebuchadnezzar confessed about God after his divine discipline, he said this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, And among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, whereas books like Ezra and Nehemiah and other prophets, let us know that God still viewed the exiles who had returned in the land. Because one of the questions now after the exile is, are we still God's people? That God, because of those books, lets us know that he views them as his people. Well, Esther answers, well, what about the people who remained outside the land? And Esther answers in the affirmative that God still views them also as his people. But God rescues his people for more than just their sake, which we can really only appreciate because of where we stand in history to be able to look back from our vantage point to see how God's plan has unfolded. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul, many years later, will reflect on what God had accomplished for the nations through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and highlight God's bigger purpose that Esther is contributing to. Paul wrote, let me just grab a portion of it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the bless, Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God had already long decided before any of these events happened that he was going to save Jews and Gentiles through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus and God was unwilling to allow during the time of Esther, a wicked, high-ranking government official, nor a foolish king to thwart his plans of redemption, although some of his people were not as faithful as they should have been. See, God was already moving history towards one direction, that he was coming into the world in the person of Jesus, and there was nothing in heaven or, 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 or on earth that was going to stop him from accomplishing his purpose. And that's how we're able to say God rules. Now, the main tool of the text that God will use in this book to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises might come as a surprise to us. This brings us back to our text. So let's read it again one more time to refresh our minds to it. Esther 1 through 9. Now in the days of King of Ahasuerus, the uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed his riches, the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp, of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, President Seuss of the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, to silver rods and marble, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to king or So a main theme and a feature that's going to show up repeatedly throughout the book of Esther is what we might refer to as feasts or banquets. If I remember correctly, I think there are 10 mentioned in the book. This is a book of what we might call parties. And it is through these events, these feasts, these banquets, that God promotes a deliverer like Joseph or Gideon and rescues his people from destruction. Now, we encounter the first three banquets in the first nine verses of which we have just read. And the, part, the author takes time to provide us with all the necessary party information that anyone would need to know about a party. We're told about the host. Uh, we're told about the location of the feast, the guests, the duration of the event, the decorations, and what was being served to point out the opulence that was happening. First, we're introduced to the host, King Ahasuerus. The author wants to impress upon us the political, social, and economic stature of this king and what he possessed in the ancient world. And we perceive this by the vastness of the territory that he ruled that was greater than any empire before. To put it in modern-day terms, he ruled from Pakistan to Sudan. Scholars have come to the consensus that King Ahasuerus is to be identified with who the Greeks called Xerxes the First. To give us a sense of what he's like, one scholar records from another ancient writing what one ancient writer said about Xerxes the Herodotus' portrayal of Xerxes the is of a person who was impulsive, a tyrannical king who loved women and alcohol and who ruled over the massive Persian Empire and thus by identifying him with Xerxes the we know a lot about his rule and reign because of Herodotus's writings and others that because it's three years in his reign we know that this is 483 BC and this has happened after he has crushed revolts at the start of his reign in Babylon and in Egypt but as it was before he prepares his three-year time to attack the Greeks which we ultimately know will be unsuccessful and set up the decline of the kingdom. We're not only told about the host, but we're also given the location of the festivities. These feasts took place at his winter palace. By me saying winter palace, that's to let you know that there's more than one of them. He actually had four in different locations so that he could, like some of us, travel to different locations based on weather. The guests for his first, first feast was government officials and military personnel, Now, it's not clear from the text how long this feast lasted, at least the first one. Uh, It it may be that the feast precedes the 180 days, or let me put it in another language, six months of him displaying his wealth, or it's a six-month party to show how great he is. To give you some idea about the kind of wealth that was on display when Alexander the Great conquered the kingdom of Persia and of the Medes, and he took over this palace and another palace, and I won't tell you all of the stuff, but let me just give you a little bit of idea. It is recorded that he consumed from this palace, a claim as Alexander the Great did, 2.4 million pounds of gold and silver bullion. 2.4 million pounds. Now, I don't know how much a gold coin weighs, but 2.4 million pounds, that's a lot. The second feast happens in the Susa as well, and he tells us at least we get the time frame In this one. It's a week-long party, seven days of partying. And we're told in the text while the king does this. Now, we know from history that perhaps he was also trying to win over the affections of those who were in his empire to prepare for his war against the Greeks. But at least the author wants us to focus on his pride. He's doing this for his self-glory to show off how great he is, and perhaps he wanted them to know if you'll give me your loyalty, I can finance it. I I got the clout. I have the ability to take care of you. Let me show you. And so this is perhaps this. And then we find out that there is, in, in just passing, just briefly mentioned, no details given that the queen also throws a feast for the women in the palace. Now, if you're a party planner, have a sense for interior design, you work in construction of flooring, you probably appreciate what's going on in verse 6. with well, the descriptions of how this party is laid out, it's hard for me to imagine in my mind. I don't have those bents, so I couldn't put together all the stuff. But I did think to myself, what would it be like to sit on a couch of gold? What would that feel like? Is it really any different if it's made out of solid gold? Who knows? And what about the menu? Well, from Persian culture, we know that uh, there were often exotic things brought in, animals to entertain his guests in these elaborate gardens that they have. So I imagine that at these feasts, there were foods from all over the empire, but that's not what the focus of the author wants us to pay attention to. He wants us to pay attention to one specific item on the menu, the wine. Let me restate this. For the men these are drinking parties. We might, for those who've been in college, these are frat parties just on a much larger scale. A whole empire's involved. I'll share with you with the story I've shared before. Several years ago, I had a chance to attend a, a relative's wedding, and at this reception of the wedding, uh, they had prepaid for an open bar. Now, uh, I, I'm not one who... Uh, has a taste for those kinds of drinks, and so I didn't realize the popularity of such an item offered at a reception, but it was not lost on others who were there. <laughs> so that, later that evening, as I was standing against the wall, a, a different relative who was also there um, made his way over to me, and we started to have a conversation, and I was having the conversation with him. But I noticed that the conversation was odd. There was this strangeness about it, And I couldn't figure out what it was at first. But as the conversation continued, it dawned on me that he was drunk. (laughs) That's what's going on in the text. The king has opened the bar and prepaid it. And he's made a rule. Drink as much as you want, as often as you want. And that's on days without end. Now, I imagine what I experienced on a small scale was on a large scale at these events. And it's as we look at this text, we have to ask ourselves, what spiritual value could such an occasion have for us? And this is what I walk away with. This seemingly insignificant event in life. Parties for men drinking parties. Become the stage upon which God executes his plan for his glory and the good of humanity. Because what we learn from Esther is this. That God uses all kinds of events and human decisions to keep his promises and accomplish his purposes in the world for the good of his people, which resound to his glory. Here's the point I want you to take home. Trust that even when God appears absent, he's always at work. Now this has implications for your life and my life as well. Remember Romans 8 when we covered the book of Romans? Let me just quote one verse from that section. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose see in the mundane things of life God is at work now you may at times wonder where is God in the daily routine of your life he seems absent You wake up, you get ready for work or for school, you head off to work or school, you do your job, you study, you run errands, you exercise, you raise children or grandchildren, you care for ailing family members, you serve at church, you pray, you read your Bible, you sing songs, you give, you help others, you coach, you attend games, you visit people, you do home projects, you eat, you manage finances, you have conversations just to, at the end of the day, lay down and get up the next day and do it all over again. And you wonder, where is God? As we see in the book of Esther, he's behind the scenes, orchestrating the very ordinary events of your life to achieve his intended purposes, to shape you into the image of Christ and to accomplish his purposes in the world. And it's knowing this reality That God is, though I cannot see him, though I don't always recognize what he's doing, helps me to resist the temptation that the people who are in power like King Xerxes I are in ultimate control over the destiny of the world. And it also then helps me to resist the allure of the temptation to be ensnared by the things of the world which Elder Jim prayed about. As we see in this text, the wine and the wealth which represent the good times that the world wants to offer and instead remain faithful to the call that Christ has on my life in a world that is given over to its appetites. As Roman 8 goes on to say that God has a plan and his plan ends with you in glory with Christ with a glory that will not fade away like the possession of this world and God is at work in your life to that end. Trust him even when you don't see him working in your life. Let me close with this. Joe McKeever tells this following story in an article about his friend, Brian, a minister. Brian was on a plane aboard uh, in another country flying back to Salt Lake City, and Brian was, like many of us who are uh, on planes, you sit you know, in this close proximity, you're going to be on a plane for hours uh, next to your seatmates. and if you're a friendly person, uh, you try to get uh, you know, into a conversation with those who are who are near you? And in this case, he was uh, sitting next to a mother and her 10 year old daughter. And they uh, ultimately ended up in the conversation discovering that uh, Brian was a minister. And so they began to pepper him with all these questions. And eventually, uh, Brian shared with her the story of his life and talked about how Christ had come into his life and changed everything about his life. And uh, through that testimony, they ended up deciding to place faith in Jesus Christ as God called them to his son. And he prayed with them on the plane and they became believers. That's when the lady uh, went on to then open up about what was why they were heading back to Utah. She went on to share with him that she was separated from her husband and they had been separated for two years. And the reason that they had separated was because he had a problem with drinking. But now they were on their way back because he had overcome his drinking problems and they were going to give their marriage a second try. And so in response to that, she said to them, after she had placed faith in Christ and divulged this, this intimate detail about her life, she said to him, listen, Brian, my husband needs the Lord, too. And when we get to Salt Lake City, would you please talk to him about what you have shared with us? Finally, arrived in the city, and Brian, of course, was more than willing to talk about Jesus Christ to this husband, hoping that he could share the gospel with him and and see what God had done on the plane with his wife and his daughter, now doing the husband's life, and they can start off their marriage anew with new foundations as both believers with the Spirit of God residing in them to help them through the difficulties of life. But when they engaged the husband and they found him in the airport, something interesting had already transpired. While the husband had been at the airport waiting, it just so happened that a missionary who was on furlough had taken the seat next to him. And while they were sitting there, the missionary who was already acquainted with sharing the gospel with people that he didn't know, struck up a conversation with the husband, ended up sharing faith. And the husband had come to faith in Jesus Christ while they were countries apart. See, God was at work, though neither one of them knew what he was doing to arrange two minister schedules to put on both sides of the world next to these two parts of the family. So that when they came back together, they could start off anew as members of his kingdom and children in his family. Brothers and sisters, as we make our way through Esther, we will see how God works behind the scenes so that you can perhaps identify when God has done things in your life and see that God is at work even though you don't see him. So brothers and sisters, welcome to the book of Esther. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you that you are working in the world though we don't see it through often what seems to be ordinary or insignificant events and sometimes even sinful events in which we've engaged in to indulge our appetites and yet you're still at work accomplishing your purposes. We give thanks to you. Some of us in this room perhaps were at a party and it was through a party that we came to faith in Jesus Christ and so we identify and understand how you can work in the midst of all the foolishness going on around us. We pray, Father, that we would be your vessels, your tools, as you seek to save men and women on this planet for your glory and for their good. And now, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to participate in furthering your work by pooling our resources together so that we can... Move your agenda forward in the world as you direct us by the guidance of your spirit. For we are under your mandate, seeking to do what you have already laid out for us. Direct us, guide us, and in your mysterious way, work out your will in our lives. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.